Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 24, The Younger Brilliant Brother. Who is Gregory of Nyssa? It's time to meet the second of our three Cappadocian thinkers. We've learned about Basil the Great in all his glorious ecclesiastical detail. Now it's time to go a little further down his family tree to Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory is an extraordinary thinker and vital presence in the church even to this day. Look at the list of modern thinkers who have engaged with Gregory, and you'll see a who's who of the 20th century's greatest thinkers. Some have even seen Gregory as a harbinger of our postmodern era. Yet, for others in the church, Gregory's theology is treated with a certain degree of suspicion. Mention him around the right kind of priest, and you are likely to get a quick explanation of how, you know, the church doesn't believe every jot and tittle that a church father ever wrote. Really, it's the consensus of the fathers that mattered. Not, not what one random Gregory, I mean guy, not what one random guy said. You may even be redirected to study one of the other Cappadocians, someone a bit safer, like Basil or Gregory of Nazianzus. All of which might be enough to make you ask, just who is this theological thinker extraordinaire, this harbinger of dual-named Cappadocian orthodoxy, this happily heterodox haranguer of heretics? Just who is Gregory of Nyssa? Well, there are a couple of answers to that question, but the most important one is he is not Gregory of Nazianzus. Two different thinkers both named Gregory. In the scholarship, you will often find them referred to as Nissen and Nazianzen, respectively, as a way of keeping them clear. As a general rule, in this podcast, when we have an episode that is focused pretty much exclusively on one of them, I'm just going to call that one Gregory. So for in this episode, for instance, whenever you hear me talk about Gregory, I'm talking about Gregory of Nyssa. Anytime we're talking about a story in which both of them are involved, I'll probably refer to them as either Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, or as Nissen and Nazianzen. I did very briefly start a movement in my seminary in which we abbreviated them to G-Naz and G-Niss, which I kind of liked. It was like rapper names for the early church. But I'm not going to repeat that on a serious history podcast like this one. So, what do we know about this extraordinary thinker of the church? Well, one thing we know for sure about Gregory is that he was Basil the Great's younger brother. I'm not trying to be coy. I know we've already talked about that. But what I mean is that Gregory was, in many ways, a classic younger brother to Basil. He had a bit more freedom to develop his thought and explore new ideas than his duty-bound older brother did. And yet almost everything, everything Gregory did in his own life was compared to what Basil had done. That actually starts with their birth, in fact. We don't actually know when Gregory was born. We know it was sometime in the 330s, probably in the later half of that decade. Why don't we have a more specific birth date for him? Well, because when people talk about Gregory's age, they only talk about how much younger he was than his big brother Basil. Nobody, including Gregory himself, bothered to mention how old he actually was. 
This is not helped by the fact that, as far as we know, Gregory didn't get the same formal education that Basil had enjoyed in Athens. Now, we have no idea why this was. Gregory was clearly a mind equal to his brothers, so why didn't the family invest in him the way it had in Basil? I suppose it's possible they were simply out of resources by the time Gregory came around. After all, Gregory and Basil were only two out of a family of ten children, and it's possible the family fortune simply couldn't give them all a good education. But there's another possibility. As we've discussed, Basil regarded his secular education with some skepticism, and perhaps his family rethought the value of that big, fancy, expensive education in Athens after Basil's ambivalent report. Whatever the case, Gregory wouldn't get to see the big city of Athens and decide for himself. Instead, the family decided that Gregory would be taught by a perfectly capable teacher a good bit closer to home. That teacher was Basil himself. Yes, that's right. Not only were all of Gregory's works and life compared to his brother, but his brother was the one who taught him everything he knew. In this family, there was just no escaping Basil the Great. Not at the dinner table, not at the study hall. Which means The Road to Nicaea is now brought to you by Internal Family Systems. Have you ever wanted to understand why people are so weird? Have you ever wanted to understand why people are so weird, but in the same kind of ways? Or maybe you've just wanted to confuse and annoy your friends by tossing around words like triangulation and enmeshment. Or maybe you just want to low-key blame your family for why you are the special brand of odd that you are. Whatever your needs, Internal Family Systems is the answer for you. Learn about all sorts of useful things, like talking about birth order a lot, understanding and using the word anxiety in a way different from literally everybody else, looking at other families and chuckling while you make sage predictions about how their kids are going to turn out. You won't regret learning the secrets of Internal Family Systems. Internal Family Systems. Say the quiet part out loud. Be hated for it. And, of course, there was no escaping Basil in his career, either. Like his brother, after Gregory's formal education, he had a conversion experience in which he became more deeply committed to the religious life. Unlike Basil, who was converted by a charismatic teacher, Gregory reports having a dream in which 40 martyrs of Sebast came to him and expressed their disappointment in his loose living. Now, don't get excited here. Loose living probably just meant being a pious teacher of rhetoric instead of working in the church, because that's what Gregory was doing at the time. But he got the message and accordingly shaped up and got into the family ecclesiastical business. When Basil began his peer pressure campaign to get his friends to be bishops with him, Gregory was high on his list of folks to install into positions of power. Now, Gregory was not as successful a bishop as his brother was, largely due to a lack of understanding of how to win friends and influence people. The clearest example we have of Gregory's lack of <clears throat> prudence comes from his personal life. In 371, Basil and his uncle got into a huge fight and were not on speaking terms. Gregory was really bothered by this family rift. So bothered, in fact, that he forged a letter from his uncle to Basil, trying to get the two of them talking again. He basically made up an apology from one to the other. It's a classic younger brother antic worthy of a parent trap spinoff. Oh no, the family's fighting. Let's make up letters and send them to each other so I can get them in the same room to get everyone happy again. Those antics are adorable in a child, 
The only problem was that Gregory was not a child, but a thirty-something-year-old man. He succeeded only in angering his brother further. Throughout his career as a bishop, Gregory would try to get those estranged from the church reconciled with each other. First some followers of Marcellus of Ancyra, then later a group of schismatic Christians in Antioch. Both attempts failed. Gregory never quite figured out how to influence people. We also know that Basil considered sending Gregory on a diplomatic mission to the West, but felt he didn't have the good sense necessary for such a sensitive assignment. Poor guy. Gregory's heart was in the right place, but his foot kept getting stuck in the wrong place, usually his mouth. And that case of foot and mouth disease would cost him. While Basil was adept enough at church politics to keep his job, even in the face of hostile policies by the Emperor Valens, Gregory was not. In 375, he was accused of misusing church funds at a council dominated by his Hamoyan opponents. He was unceremoniously stripped of his office and exiled. There is, by the way, not much evidence about the basis of those charges. Most historians think they're pretty spurious, and I tend to agree. It is, I think, a worst-case scenario that Gregory was simply more interested in writing theology than in the details of church accounting, and his opponents consequently found something in the books that they could throw at him. Fortunately, the exile would not be long. He would resume his bishopric three years later once Valens died. Again, further evidence that the charges were probably baseless. But it does go to show that Gregory could not wriggle out of the traps his more politically astute opponents set. If Gregory copied his brother's career choices, he also copied his writing topics. Gregory left us a rich set of writings on the Trinity, foremost among them works titled Against Eunomius and On the Holy Spirit. If those sound familiar, then I congratulate you on paying attention over the last few episodes, because those are, of course, the names of treatises that Basil wrote. Gregory, like the good old copycat younger brother that he was, thought that if Basil got to have a treatise refuting that mean old Eunomius, then he should too. In fact, Gregory one-upped his older brother by writing two works against Eunomius. After his first book, which was a criticism of Eunomius's book The Apology, Eunomius wrote a response to all the criticism he was getting from these Cappadocians, titled The Apology for the Apology. Clever title-makers the 4th century churchmen were not. Gregory then wrote another response, which made it a refutation of the refutation of his refutation, of Eunomius' original refutation of his critics. Thankfully, Eunomius died before he could write another refutation, thus ending the chain of argument for very tired church history podcast audiences everywhere. Gregory also devoted himself to editing and completing some of his brother's works after Basil's untimely death, including making subtle corrections and emendations to his brother's vast output. But I don't want to give you the impression that Gregory was a mere copycat because he was perfectly capable of distinguishing himself from his brother. He wrote a couple of important works of Trinitarian theology that do not share a name with his brother's corpus. Most important of these is his letter to Oblavius on Not Three Gods. Yes, that is the actual title, On Not Three Gods, and we will be covering it in due course. He also wrote many, many works on mystical and ascetical theology that we will be covering in the supplementals. But perhaps the biggest difference between Gregory and Basil is not in his theology, but it was in his mode of life. 
for Gregory, unlike his brother or their Nazianzen friend, was married. I told you a while back that each of the three Cappadocian fathers had some experience of monasticism, and that's true. But of the three, Gregory had the least exposure to it, and most of it was secondhand through his brother. We don't know exactly when he got married, but we know that it was pretty early in his life, and we know that the marriage lasted until his wife's death in 387, by which point Gregory had been a bishop for 15 years. Now wait a minute, you might be saying. I thought priests couldn't get married in this time period. That is actually a very common misconception. Clerical marriages were not the norm, especially for bishops, but they wouldn't be outlawed for centuries yet. There was no canon law on the books forbidding priests from getting married. That's actually a much later innovation, and one designed to combat simony, essentially the practice of priests trying to pass on church lands to their sons and treating them like the family heritage. We know absolutely nothing about Gregory's marriage to his wife other than two things. First, we know it produced a son. Second, Gregory's very first written work was titled On Virginity, and in the work, Gregory describes marriage as a regrettable institution, a concession made by God to human weakness after the fall. If there had been no fall, we would have all lived as perpetual virgins and never gotten married, and that would have been way better, Gregory says. But due to sin, we're now all stuck trying to find somebody to go through life with. This sentiment surely makes Gregory of Nyssa the patron saint of dating apps, and I plan to get that added to his list of accolades just as soon as somebody from the Vatican or Istanbul answers my calls. Now, we have no word as to how his wife received this book, though I imagine it made for some rather awkward conversation at the dinner table. Yet none of these aspects of Gregory's life, his marriage, his bishopric, his lack of people skills, would be his most enduring legacy. For that, we will have to take a look at his remarkable vision of God that still inspires theological creativity today. This is really his unique genius among the Cappadocian fathers. Basil was a better administrator, Gregory of Nazianzus a more powerful orator. But very few contemporary theologians are reading Basil the Great to do constructive theology. With the notable exception of the social Trinitarians, most people treat Gregory of Nazianzus as a venerable source of classic doctrine, not really a font of fresh insights. But Gregory of Nyssa is still read with profit and creatively appropriated by contemporary theologians of all traditions and opinions. We'll be spending the next chunk of time on Gregory's doctrine of the Trinity, and we'll get to look at some of his other contributions along the way. What I want to do in this episode is walk you through some of the most fundamental presuppositions that will give rise to his remarkable theology. You can think of these as his foundational principles. Just like the foundation of a house, if it's doing its job, it's not really noticeable. Yet the foundation is what makes everything else. The spacious kitchen, the open floor plan, the mudroom, the basement laser tag arena, the man cave, the master bedroom that aggressively heteronormative couples will walk into on HGTV shows while the wife jokingly asks where her husband's clothes are supposed to go in that walk-in closet. The foundation is what makes all of that possible. Just so with Gregory. There are a number of principles he holds that may not be familiar to us and are worth acclimatizing ourselves to before we venture deeper into the capacious weather dome that is his brain. The first of these ideas is a nifty little notion called the convertibility of being and goodness. Simply put, 
This idea is that to be is to be good, and goodness has a sort of being by virtue of being good. Now, if you are like most people who haven't read a lot of ancient philosophy, you are probably scratching your head and thinking, huh? Don't worry, you're not alone. Let's unpack that idea. Start with a simple question. Is it better to exist or not to exist? Most of us would probably say that it's better to exist. After all, when you exist, you can do fun things like move and laugh and go to brunch with your friends and play dodgeball. While existence can come with its fair share of problems, on the whole, most of us prefer it to the alternative. Non-existence seems dreadfully dull by comparison. That means that, simply put, it is good to exist. Now, if existence is good, then anything that exists has to be at least a little bit good simply because it exists. It may still be a bad thing, but it's at least made better by the fact that it exists instead of, you know, not existing. That allows us to claim that there is a link between goodness and being. But that, of course, leads to a question. What about evil? Does evil exist? Well, the answer must be no, not really. For an evil thing is by definition evil and can't even be a little bit good. Not, mind you, a bad thing, not a thing that is a mixture of good and bad and might have more bad than good, but evil in itself, or simply a thing that is purely evil. And if we think about it more, many of the things that we would put in that category aren't really existent things at all. They are just misordered relationships or lacks of good things. For example, poverty is just the lack of funds, just like cold is the absence of heat. And lust is no more than a disordered attraction that tempts us to an inappropriate relationship. So Gregory will say, like many people in his day, that ultimately evil isn't a substantial thing. It doesn't exist on its own. Evil is a name we give to disordered relationships and lacks of good caused by our own free choices. Now, for a Christian like Gregory, this is very good news on two counts when it comes to God. The first is that we can say that God didn't create anything evil. No, sir. By definition, whatever exists is good, and thus it was made good. God created the world entirely good, and it was only later corrupted by free agents. How could it be otherwise? Evil isn't an existing thing at all. How could it be created? The second good news is that since God is overflowing with eternal and infinite being, God is infinitely and inexhaustibly good, which is very wonderful news for a religion that promises an eternity spent with that God. The idea that God is infinite will lead Gregory to one of his most celebrated doctrines called epictosis, or constant progress. It's so celebrated, in fact, that it is going to get its own whole supplemental episode, and I'm not going to spoil it for you now. But perhaps some of you are thinking there's nothing to spoil. You might be saying, well, yeah, of course God is infinite. Who would doubt that? Why was this such a big deal? Well, dear listener, it was a big deal, and there were a lot of people who doubted it back in the day. Of course, the idea that God was all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good was never in any serious doubt. That was quite well established from the beginning. The idea that God was infinite in being and infinite in every respect was not. In fact, Origen of Alexandria would occasionally describe God as finite. Now, Origen meant this as a kind of compliment, 
For him, being a rational being meant having proper bounds and limits so as to be circumscribable. Since God was the most rational being, of course God had to be finite in some sense. Way, way bigger than us, way, way bigger than the universe, but finite. Origen is, of course, speaking metaphorically here, since he definitely doesn't think God has a physical body, but you get the picture. Just like I am me, Ben Wyatt, church history podcaster, and not you, or this table, or the sound communicated on your recording device, so too there are limits around what can be said to be God, or even to be of God. While Gregory of Nyssa doesn't want to say that I'm God, or this table is God, or the Bermuda Triangle is God, he does insist that God's being is infinite and inexhaustible. We can never sound out its limits or know it in its fullness because it is infinite. There is always more to discover. Gregory championed this idea more than any other theologian of his day. It's a testament to his success, how many of us take it for granted. Now, Gregory's importance comes not just from his vision of God, but also from his vision of the human being. Gregory made a very sharp division of the world into the creator, that's God, and all created things, which is everything else. You'll remember that this same division was a centerpiece of Athanasius' arguments against the Ariomaniacs. He was frustrated that they kept trying to find a middle ground for the sun to make him some kind of watered-down, skim-milk divinity. Gregory shared his frustration with the Ariomaniac's aims, but Gregory went on to make a further division in the created order between the sensible world and the intelligible world. The sensible world is the one that you and I move around in every day, planet Earth with its sights and sounds and smells and incessantly changing weather patterns. The intelligible world is the realm of spiritual realities, angels, concepts, and the like. Right smack dab in the middle of these two worlds is the human being, who is, of course, a part of the sensible order, but also has an intelligent soul that is capable of perceiving realities in the intelligible world. Now, those of you who know a thing or two about ancient philosophy have probably been muttering to yourselves for the last few minutes, this sounds an awful lot like Plato. And you're right. Gregory of Nyssa was deeply indebted to Platonic philosophy, and his ideas about the world and humanity's place in it are quite similar to Plato. But there is one big, important difference. In Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophy, the goal of human life is to detach yourself from the sensible world and understand more and more of the intelligible world. That's how you live a good life. For Gregory, on the other hand, our ultimate goal is not the intelligible world. It's God who is equally the creator of both the intelligible and sensible realms, and is equally beyond both of them. I'm harping on this point because there's a very common criticism made of Platonic and Neoplatonic philosophies that they are disembodied and denigrate the material realm. They are too intellectualized and don't actually care about important material things like just living conditions, or political freedom, or social causes. And I do think that critique is actually right on most of the time, but it's a bit lazy. Because a good ancient Platonist or Neoplatonist would probably say, yeah, I don't care so much about those things, because the whole point of my philosophy is that they aren't the most important things, and if you just focus on the intelligible world, all of these things would turn out right. It's sort of like criticizing a hammer for only being good at working with nails and not screws. 
You may not like the design, but that doesn't mean it was badly designed. Anyway, the more important point for us is that people make this critique of Platonism. Then they read Gregory of Nyssa and learn he's a Platonist, and they think, oh, well, then he must clearly do exactly the same thing as all the other Platonists out there. And that is simply not true. Gregory does not think our final end is found in our intellectual life. In fact, we must exceed the capacity of our intellect, just as we exceeded the capacity of our physical sight to find beatitude. What Gregory seems to do, at least in my view, is to say that the Platonic and or Neoplatonic view of human ascent is incomplete. Yes, we need to devote ourselves to understanding intellectual realities. Yes, we need to become virtuous. But ultimately, our destiny is found in union with the God who created mind and matter, and therefore transcends them both. Say what you will about that vision, but it is definitely not standard-issue Platonic intellectualism. You may also be interested to know that Gregory's philosophy does not preclude engagement with social issues. In fact, he preaches one of the very first sermons calling for the abolition of slavery. The question of philosophy's relationship to theology is a vexing one. Gregory's particular synthesis had plenty of critics in his day as in ours. There are those who will say that Platonism is an unchristian system of thought that is alien to the gospel and corrupts Christian truth. Others will simply accuse Gregory of being confused about his purpose. Philosophy is its own discipline with one set of aims. Theology is another. Combining the two is sort of like making a combination laundry detergent and dish soap. I mean, you could do it, but you're going to wind up with something that doesn't do either job very well. Gregory himself could be very critical of the way his opponents use philosophy in their theological reasoning. But I am inclined to see the matter a bit differently. For Gregory's philosophy was quite simply the air he breathed and the lens through which he viewed the world. Asking Gregory not to use his philosophy in his writings would be like asking for us to forget about gravity, or our belief in the form of government we have, or our knowledge of other cultures and traditions when doing theology. Perhaps we could do that, but why? And is doing theology with those commitments an unacceptable adulteration of the faith? Or is it simply the way we do faith as people living in the 21st century? Whatever standard we set for ourselves, let's not judge Gregory more harshly. But judge him we shall. Or you shall, at any rate. I'm a history podcaster. My job is to maintain an ironic, humorous detachment from all matters of doctrine while meandering into obscure jokes and hackneyed analyses of ancient trivia. You can hear Gregory's arguments next time as we delve into his Trinitarian theology. And we'll start where Basil would have wanted us to start, as his little brother offers his own arguments against Eunomius in a special déjà vu edition of The Road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.